Well, uh, Daniel eleven thirty six to 45 is our text for this evening. Daniel eleven thirty six to 45. Some of you may be thinking, yeah, you said that last week too and we didn't get there. But I hope that you uh, enjoyed that introduction as we delved into a few of those aspects. And as we begin, I, I just have a short statement and a question. And uh, that is, well, that's my king. I wonder... Do you know him? That short video clip that we showed last week by Dr. S.M. Lockridge, recorded in the 1970s and excerpted from a sermon that he did in his church in San Diego. And as we showed that, that was a, a powerful expression of the gospel. And such an important point for us to recognize because this is the point of scripture and the point of our text. Now we've been studying for weeks the kings of media Persia, the kings of Greece. We have looked through Alexander the Great and all of the kings that developed from the four men who took over after him. Those whom we've become familiar with as the Ptolemies or Ptolemies, if you will, and the Seleucids. The Seleucids in the north coming from primarily Syria and the Ptolemies coming from primarily Egypt. And we have looked at the amazing text from Daniel 11 verse 20 down to 35 and the nuances of these kings that occurred even before that, and then Antiochus, the fourth Epiphanes, that final wicked and dark king, and the abomination of desolation that he brings forth. And these are all only pieces leading to the main event. And that main event is Messiah. It is the Lord Jesus Christ. It is God incarnate who is and who was and who always will be and who we know as the man, Jesus of Nazareth. And last week I elaborated how there is no saving faith apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. And how it is critical that we must acknowledge that fact. And some will love to say to me, oh well, pastor, uh, uh, what about those people in the jungles of Africa that have never heard the name of the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you telling me that God's going to judge them and send them to hell? And I love to answer that question. But what I love most about answering that question is to say, let me ask you a question. Have you heard the name of the Lord Jesus Christ? Because it doesn't matter what they're doing. God will be just and he will deal with them equitably and rightly. But you know that name. Have you bowed your knee? Have you confessed that Jesus Christ is Lord and master of your life? For without that, regardless of your religiosity, regardless of how good you think you are, how many wonderful things you've done and do, you will end up the same place as everyone else who rejects Jesus Christ as Lord. And that is eternally separated from him. So this is so critical. And the the historical review of the kings of Media and Persia and Greek show the breathtaking prophetic details of the future events of Daniel's vision which he proclaimed 400 years before they occurred. And this all points to Christ. This is how the, the, the book of Daniel is structured. Remember, Daniel is broken into two halves, chapters 1 through 6, historic, chapters 7 through 12, prophetic. And in both halves, there is an overarching chapter that then the rest of that section of the book further emphasizes. Chapter 2 is the overarching view of chapters 1 through 6, and it is the vision given To Nebuchadnezzar of the statue made of four separate materials representing five kingdoms. And do you remember what happens to the statue at the end of the dream? A rock, that's right, a rock comes forward, cut out of a mountain without hands. And what does it do to that statue? 
pulverizes it, knocks it to dust. One of the most powerful Hebrew terms to show that there is nothing left. This is nothing but chaff afterwards. And who is the rock? The Lord Jesus Christ. So here we have in the first half this vision that then we see the vision further exemplified in chapters 3, 4, 5, and 6, all of which connect back to Christ. And then we have chapter 7 and the incredible details of chapter 7 and that beautiful picture of the vision that comes forth that climaxes with the picture of the Ancient of Days on his throne And then being presented before God Almighty is the Son of Man. Who we know to be the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ. And we have this picture moving forward through that then into chapter 9 and the 70 weeks. Which specifically identify to the very day when Jesus Christ would be cut off. From his people, that is when he would be crucified. And we've gone through all of those beautiful details. Chapter 8 gave us the initial plans of the kings of Media Persia. Again, chapter 9, the 70 weeks. And then at the end of the 70 weeks, we get to the coming of Christ. And so also in chapters 10 through 12, this final vision of Daniel, we have all of these kings leading forward and Now we are coming to the second coming of Christ. So the 70 weeks or the first 69 of the 70 weeks climaxes with the first coming of Messiah. And now we're going to see the second coming as that climax. It all points to the Lord Jesus Christ. All specifically describes his first and second coming. And there's not a piece of this book, there's not a a clause or phrase that is not supportive of that element. And it's fantastic to behold. And our section for tonight is that section leading to his coming and thus our title, which you see there in your outline, in your prayer guides, the beginning of the end. The beginning of the end. Of the end. That is the beginning of this final section of the last ruler that will be in existence before Jesus Christ comes to reign upon the earth. And this is where we also get our theme from this evening four details confirming for you the coming of Christ's return. Four details confirming for you the coming of Christ's return. So here we have this amazing aspect of what we're going to see in Christ's return. And although it's not specifically referenced until the very end and in very brief points, realize that all of this is giving us that understanding of Christ's coming back. It all points to the Lord Jesus Christ, all specifically describing his coming. So let's go to our first point, which I've titled, A Religious Cessation. A Religious Cessation. Now last week we backed up the bus to look at Daniel 8 and verses 21 to 27, where we have the near and far fulfillments, that is from a prophetic point of view, the near fulfillment focusing on Antiochus IV Epiphanes, and the far fulfillment focusing on Antichrist. And we went over all of those details. We talked about how in other prophecies, such as Jeremiah, Isaiah, many of the minor prophets, there are three phases of prophecy, near, intermediate, and far. Near being the first 500 years from the prophet's writing. Uh, uh, Intermediate being somewhere within a thousand years within the prophet's writing, typically focusing on Christ's first advent, and then far fulfillment, focusing on end times, typically Christ's second coming. So in Daniel 8, we had the near fulfillment of Antiochus, the far fulfillment of of Antichrist. And as we see these described, we've already looked at Daniel 11, 20 to 35, Those verses are also focusing on the near fulfillment specifics of Antiochus IV Epiphanes. Again, 
Daniel proclaiming these 400 years before they occurred, but we now have the amazing privilege because they are historical to look back and see the specificity by which Daniel's prophecy was fulfilled. And then again, the far fulfillment of Antichrist described broadly in Daniel 8, 21 to 27, and now specifically in Daniel eleven thirty six to 45. And this with material that we find nowhere else in the Bible, which is a very big statement because when we think of prophetic texts, there's a lot of prophetic books in our Bible. Let's see, how many minor prophets do we have? Quick little Bible trivia quiz for everybody. How many minor prophets? Twelve. Twelve. I'm sure that was the answer. Twelve, exactly. We have twelve minor prophets. And of our major prophets, how many major prophets do we have? Four. That's right. And there's other prophetic texts that are intermixed in other sections of Scripture. So we have 16 Old Testament books. And then we've got a few things in the New Testament, like a good deal of the Lord's life as he's telling what's going to happen, and particularly what we reference the Olivet Discourse. That is, as Jesus was in the last night of his life, and he is with the disciples, having left the upper room and crossed the Kidron Valley, and he is sitting on the Mount of Olives, looking across at the temple when they, the disciples particularly Peter and Andrew and John, ask him, when will be the time? That is, when will be the fulfillment of the temple being torn down? And Jesus goes into this teaching about the end times. So there's a lot of stuff, not to mention several of the texts we're going to look at tonight. Yes, several of the texts. We're going to bounce around. If you're taking notes, write down the scripture references. If you want a little heads up where we're going to turn, two primary places, 2 Thessalonians and the book of Revelation. You might, if you've got bookmarks, you want to stick them in Revelation 13. Revelation 13 and 2 Thessalonians 2 will be bouncing around those areas and you can write down those references as we move along. So we've got a lot of prophetic text and we're going to see here details recorded nowhere else in scripture, but supported by those other areas. So let's dive in. Verse 36 begins, then the king, then the king. This indicates a transition to antichrist. The first word then shows us that there is a transition. It's indicated in the Hebrew grammar in the form of the conjunction that is prefixed to the first Hebrew verb. And it is translated as then. And that is a, a very good translation of that word. Indicating a temporal transition at, at time. We noticed at the end of verse 35... There is a forward-looking transition to the end of time. Look at verse 35, Daniel 11. Some of those who have insight will fall in order to refine, purge, and make them pure until the end time. Because it is still to come at the appointed time. And we spoke much about those terms, appointed time and end time. But we note... That it's looking forward, verse 35 is looking forward still to the end time. And as we consider that further moving forward of, of the end time, we also see in verse 36, after that temporal transition, then a new individual occurring. Note it carefully, the king. The king. Nowhere else in Daniel, in these prophetic texts at the end of our passage, do we see the singular version of the word king with the definite article the, unless it has a further modifier, south or north. So this is a new individual, the king, that is used here. 
And so that's very important for us to understand. Further, com, con, uh, excuse me, further confirmation of the end times is in verse 40. Bounce down to verse 40 with me, where it says, At the end time, the king of the, the south will collide with him. Him is the king. Notice now, at the end time. Now we are in the end time. Verse 35, we were looking forward to it. Boom, now we're in it. Transitioning with then the king in verse 36. And furthermore, verse 36 shows us four actions of this king who is Antichrist. Verse 36, then reading it together. Then the king will do as he pleases and he will exalt and magnify himself above every God and will speak, excuse me, and will speak monstrous things against the God of gods and he will prosper until the indignation is finished for that which is decreed will be done. He first, his first action we see is he does as he pleases. Now, when we first hear this, we might say, you know, we've been talking about all those 14 kings of the Seleucids and the Ptolemies. They all sounded like they did what they pleased. But there was also some limitations on that, weren't there? We would argue that Antiochus IV Epiphanes was the most powerful of the 14 rulers of the post-Alexandrian dynasty. And yet we see that he was rebuffed repeatedly by Rome. So although he sort of did what he pleased, he sort of didn't. So this is a, a deeper statement that is speaking about that aspect of him doing what he, whatever he wants. And this phrase, he does as he pleases, it shows us the incredible power and authority that this new king has. None of the former kings had this extent of power. And as we referenced, all of them were in some way limited. In Daniel 8, 4... And in Daniel 11.3, this same phrase, he does as he pleases, is used in Daniel 8.4 of King Cyrus. The first and arguably most powerful king, perhaps not financially so, but the king of prophecy from Isaiah 44 and 45 is also said to do as he pleases. And Alexander the Great in Daniel 11.3, is said to do as he pleases. But let's remember also what happened to Alexander after he had conquered the modern known world in six years, faster than anyone else ever before or since, then died one year later. So he really didn't do as he pleased for very long. So there was this share of power that each of these kings had. And, and we see that even when we look ahead, that the, the ten kings that we will see in the end times, that we see in Revelation, that in Revelation 17, that they too share power and they gain ultimate authority as Tanner notes, reflecting on Daniel 7.24, so that they can give their power over to Antichrist. Let's go ahead and spin forward to Revelation chapter 17 and look briefly at these verses, Revelation 17 and verses 11 to 13. Daniel, you can just listen along, Revelation 17 and 11. The beast which was and is not is himself also an eighth and is one of the seven and he goes to destruction. The section before in verses 5 through 10 describes those aspects. Verse 12. The ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but they receive authority as kings with the beast for one hour. Verse 13, these have one purpose and they give their power and authority to the beast. The beast is Antichrist. The ten kings are those which we have discussed back in Daniel 7 and you can refresh yourselves by going back and listening to those messages again for those different components. 
So the first thing we see this king doing is that he does as he pleases. Secondly, the king will exalt himself above every god. Remember, exalt, Antiochus exalted the kings of the, of the Greeks, didn't he? The abomination of desolation. Yes, he exalted himself, but when he made the maximum expression of the abomination of desolation, it was to move a statue of himself? No. King Zeus into the temple and then to sacrifice pigs and other unclean animals. So this king is not exalting other kings. He is rather exalting himself above every god. One commentator notes, it's likely later in the reign of Antichrist that this second element occurs. Remember, we are now talking about the period of the tribulation. And that there are facets and even sections of the tribulation referred to throughout scripture. Primarily the first three and a half years and the second three and a half years. So what we're seeing here as expressed by Tanner is that this exalting himself above every God will occur primarily later on and as we'll see primarily in the second half of the tribulation which is called the great tribulation. Now it is after he has taken dominion from the ten kings which we read about in Revelation 17 which is the beginning of Daniel's 70th week where he establishes a covenant with Israel. So this is what many commentators and scholars believe is the second prophetic event in the timetable of the end times. The first event is the rapture of the church. The second event is Antichrist's covenant with Israel. And in that covenant with Israel, we see that he will carry forth many aspects that are being revealed to us here in Daniel chapter 11. Now this is not absolutely certain with respect to the order of those two events. It appears that that most likely and accurately fits scripture and I'll show you why. But they could be reversed without any violence being done to scripture. So Antichrist could first make that treaty with Israel and then the rapture of the church could occur. Although again, it appears most likely that they would be the other way around with the rapture coming first. This covenant could in fact, again, preclude the, the rapture. But the timing assessment of the rapture comes from 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And I would like you to turn there with me in your Bibles. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. As we know, 2 Thessalonians, 1st and 2 Thessalonians are books that are focusing uh, primarily on the, the church this great church that has lost their focus and they're spending too much time considering the end times and not doing what they're supposed to be doing in that day and age, particularly working as we see some of the rebukes come forward to them in chapter 3 of 2 Thessalonians. But in each of the chapters in 1 Thessalonians, there is a reference to the parousia, that is the coming of Christ. It is a transliteration from a Greek word parousia, which means coming. And it is a period of time as we look at the entire usage in the Greek New Testament of that word parousia, including primarily 1 Corinthians 15. It is a time which begins with the rapture, extends through Christ's second coming to earth. Revelation 19, which we'll get to, Lord willing, tonight. And also to his millennial reign on earth. All of that is the parousia. There is a reference in every chapter of 1 Thessalonians to that. And of course we have the phenomenal rapture passage in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18. So this idea of the end times continues forward into 2 Thessalonians. Let's take a look at these verses. 2 Thessalonians 2 beginning in verse 1. 
Now we request, we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Okay, break right there. Paul is writing to tell them, don't be misled. Even if someone sends you a letter, even if they send you a letter in my name, even if a spirit comes and tells you that the day of the Lord has come, don't believe it. The day of the Lord is the beginning of the end times. It is the beginning of these events. It is the beginning of Antichrist's reign. It is beginning with the rapture and continuing forward. Paul says, note carefully these details. Verse 3. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first. Notice the word first. He's delineating for us a sequence of events. And that event that must begin, it will not come unless the apostasy comes, apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. So the key for us to focus on in verse 3 is it will not come. What will not come? The rapture, the beginning of the parousia, yes. The rapture of the church. This is why we believe that the rapture of the church is the first event in the prophetic timetable. And the beginning of the parousia and the beginning of what will be the coming of Christ. Where he will, those that are the dead in Christ will rise first. That those that are alive and remain will join them. And Christ will meet them in the air. Not come to earth. Meet them in the air. Take the church with him to heaven. Through the seven years of the tribulation. Where they will then return with him in Revelation 19. For his final conquest upon those who have rejected him through that period. And prior to his coming and onward into the millennial kingdom. So that's what will not come unless the apostasy comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed. This is Antichrist. So he must first be revealed. Verse 4, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? And you know what restrains him now, so that in his time he will be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Then the lawless one will be revealed. Whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearing of his coming, parousia, by the way, that word coming, that is the one whose coming, whose parousia is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all the power and signs and false wonders and with all the deception and wickedness for those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. Notice the events that are coming forward. The man of lawlessness is going to be revealed. Then we're going to see him exalting himself above every so-called God. Verse 5, we back up and Paul says, Remember I was telling you this, that he's not appeared yet because that which restrains him, the Holy Spirit, is still in place. But the Holy Spirit will be removed. That is the restraining influence upon sin on this planet at this time. And that as the Spirit is removed, then all lawlessness and all wickedness will be given full vent. And yes, it is not given full vent today, no matter what we think. And we might think that it has been because it's pretty ugly out there in a lot of ways. 
And at that time, he will be revealed. That revelation will be the covenant, as we'll see from Daniel. But keep these verses in mind. Bounce back with me now, if you would, to Daniel chapter 11. And as we think of the action ongoing here, the second action, exalting himself above every God, that's where we are. And he establishes a covenant again where Antichrist will present himself to Israel as their Messiah. The revelation of Antichrist will not come initially as the one who is deriding God, who is standing in the temple and placing himself as God. No, he has to first come as the deceiver who lures Israel into this covenant proclaiming to be their Messiah. And after establishing the covenant, acting initially as their Messiah would, as their protector, as the one who stands for them. And this is how initially he will be. He'll present himself as the protector of the Jewish people and of the Jewish law and of the Mosaic covenant. I'm coming back to help you. Do you have a temple yet? Do they have a temple today in Israel? No. I will help you. Perhaps the temple is already ongoing. Perhaps not. But he establishes a covenant where he will promise the return of the Mosaic sacrifices. This will be the third temple built. First temple that built was Solomon's. The second was Ezra's, often called Herod's, because of his remodel of it. The third temple that will occur is this temple that Antichrist will promise the restoration of the Mosaic Covenant sacrifices. Which, by the way, are not needful because Christ has fulfilled those sacrifices, but... They're still looking forward to it because of Ezekiel 40 to 48. So they're looking for a Messiah still today. And they're not unbiblical in their expectation. They of course are massively unbiblical in not recognizing Christ as their Messiah. Jesus as their Messiah. But they are still looking for that fulfillment. The further part of this second element happens later at what scripture calls the beginning of the great tribulation. That is the second half of the great tribulation. The last three and a half months, the last 42, three and a half years, the last 42 months. Four particular scriptures describe this. The first is by our Lord in what I referenced earlier as the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 and 15. And in Matthew 24 and 15, Jesus says, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Could this be Antiochus IV? No. That's a historic event. That event happened 160 years before when Jesus is speaking this. And he says, when you see, still hasn't happened. So here's where we understand the absolute clarity of this near and far fulfillment in Antiochus who started it and Antichrist who will complete it. The next scripture verse we already read in 2 Thessalonians and verse 2. Uh, 2 Thessalonians 2 and verse 4 where it says who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God displaying himself as being God. Bouncing ahead to Revelation chapter 11. Revelation chapter 11 and verses 1 and 2. The Apostle John writes, Then there was given me a measuring rod like a staff, and someone said, Get up and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship in it. Leave out the court which is outside the temple, and do not measure it, for it has been given to the nations, and they will tread underfoot the holy city for 42 months. So we first have the revelation of the lawless one. Then we're going to have 
the treading underfoot for three and a half years, 42 months, the great tribulation. And we see Daniel 9.27 referenced throughout these verses I've just read. And in Daniel 9 and 27 we read, And he will make a firm covenant. This is what I've just been describing to you. He will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. That is the 70th week of Daniel. He will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. But in the middle of the week... The three and a half year mark, the beginning of the great tribulation, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering and on the wing of abomination will come one who makes desolate even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. So here we have this full-orbed scope of this next event, which is the revelation of the lawless one, as Messiah, as the helper of the Jewish people, making a covenant, then stopping the covenant, and violating the covenant by ending the sacrifices that he promised to carry forth. Continuing on in Daniel 11. This is the exalting himself and the speaking monstrous things, which is our third point, against the God of gods as he takes his seat in the temple, having stopped the sacrifices of the third temple and proclaiming himself as God. In Revelation 13.6 and in Daniel 7.25, that is Revelation 13 and 6, and Daniel 27 excuse me, Daniel 7.25, these both detail this speech. And we'll take a quick look at these in Revelation 13 and 6, where we see, and he opens his mouth, this is Antichrist, in blasphemies against God, to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle, that is, those who dwell in heaven. So here we have the picture of the stopping of the sacrifices, and we have now, finally, Antichrist exalting himself above every so-called God. That's which we saw coming in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. We further see in Daniel chapter 7 and verse 25 the following. Daniel 7 and 25. He will speak out against the Most High and wear down the saints of the Highest One and he will attend to make alterations in times and in law and they will be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. That is a year, years, and half a year, three and a half years which is the end of the tribulation period. And notice his effort in verse 25 is to make alteration in times and law. Why? Because the specificity of the time that God is allowing this to occur is stated over and over and over again. He wants to alter that. He wants to change it. He wants to control and manipulate God's timetable. And the Lord tells us in the Olivet Discourse, had the time not been cut short, no one would have survived. The times are unalterable because they are controlled by God. The monstrous speech that we see in Daniel 11 and verse 36 that is being spoken about here is followed by the fourth element. And that monstrous speech, by the way, is his proclamation of himself as God. The fourth element is his prospering until the indignation is finished. Literally in Hebrew, he will exceed until the curse or the time of wrath is finished. Tanner notes that this Hebrew word for wrath or indignation is primarily that which belongs to God. So this phrase is the Old Testament day of the Lord. Or the day of Yahweh. This is the time where Yahweh is bringing judgment, final judgment upon those who reject him. And it will go through until the final day when he ultimately will judge Antichrist. 
But he is allowing it through this period. And this is that Old Testament term, the day of the Lord. So the wrath that we see in verse 36, as he magnifies himself above every God and speaks monstrous thing against the God of gods, and he will prosper until the indignation is finished for that which is decreed will be done. So that prospering until the wrath is finished or until the wrath is ended is the day of the Lord. It is the final end of the great tribulation. The verse concludes with Antichrist's end for that which is decreed will be done. And this decreed end is the second coming of Christ. When this ends, Christ comes back. The conclusion and the final destruction of the day of the Lord, where the Lord Jesus Christ himself returns to judge and to destroy Antichrist, is his physical return to earth and the second coming. So all of these events are moving forward. And although it's not stated here, that's what the next event in the prophetic timetable is. Again, this is God's wrath and punishment against the unbelief of mankind. And we see this in so many places. We see it in verses like 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 2, which reads, For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night where he will bring his judgment. Or as we read in 2 Thessalonians 2 and 2, that you may be quickly shaken from your composure or disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect the day of the Lord has come. Or as in Revelation chapter 6 and verse 17. Revelation 6 and 17. For the great day of their wrath has come and who is able to stand? Just before that, as the judgments are ongoing through the first portion of the tribulation, the first three and a half years, we see men cowering from the earthquake and seeking to hide themselves in the rocks and saying, who is able to stand against the great day of the Lord? So we see the verse conclude with Antichrist's end. For that which is decreed will be done. That is the end of Antichrist per 2 Thessalonians 2 and 8, which we read. Then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearing of his coming. So confirmation that the end of this section will be Christ's physical return to earth. That which we also see in Revelation chapter 19 and verses 20 to 21. And we read in Revelation 19 and 20. And the beast was seized, Antichrist, and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image, these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone and the rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse and all the birds were filled with their flesh. So this is the end. And verse 36 then becomes an overview of the entire period of the tribulation. From the very beginning until the conclusion and destruction of Antichrist. Our first point of religious cessation concludes in verse 37, which reads, He will show no regard for the gods of his fathers or for the desire of women, nor will he show regard for any other God, for he will magnify himself above them all. Here we back up to see more of the actions of Antichrist. Showing no regard for the gods of his fathers shows Antichrist's religious perspective. Again, the title of our point is a religious cessation. Verse 37 is all a religious focus. Understand that right now, and it'll help you with confusion that may be entering your mind as I just read it. 
He shows no regard for the gods of his fathers. First off, you'll see in your New American Standard Bibles that there is a footnote number one next to the word gods. And in the footnote, it says, or God. The accurate translation, the most accurate translation is the word God. Capital G-O-D. This is the word Yahweh that we would understand. It is the, excuse me, it is that reference to Yahweh, but it is the Hebrew word Elohim. The plural of majesty. The same word for the creator God in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That is the word Elohim. And in Hebrew, we see that clearly. Barashit bara Elohim et hashamayim wa et haaretz. So it is Elohim who is the creator God. And it is the God, singular of his fathers, that he is rejecting, that he is showing no regard for. Such an important element for us to understand because to further corroborate this idea that it is the singular God is that this phrase, the God of his fathers, is used 45 times in the Old Testament and every time it references the creator God, not the plural gods. One commentator notes this Hebrew phrase just shows us clearly that we have here a reference to the Yahweh of the Bible. As God revealed himself to Moses, he said, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. It was obedience or disobedience to the God of their fathers by which Israel and the kings of Israel were judged. And so also in exactly the same way, it is disobedience to the God of his father, which Antichrist would be judged. God's standard of justice and punishment is the same for all. But what this also tells us is that this is confirmation that Antichrist is coming from the Jewish lineage. It is the God of his fathers. Antichrist is of Jewish descent and the king shows that no regard for the God of his fathers. The next phrase, or for the desire of women, appears to have direct connection to sexual orientation. Some have jumped to this conclusion, but it is not, repeat, not appropriate in this context. This whole sentence is focusing on religious rejection. The phrase at the beginning of verse 37 shows Antichrist's rejection of the one true God. The phrase following this one, the beloved of women or the desire of women, is the rejection of every God. The literal Hebrew actually connects this phrase with the one following it. A literal Hebrew translation of this would be, and for the beloved of women and for every God, he will have no regard. Outstanding scholar and teacher and commentator and uh, most notably memorable as uh, Dr. MacArthur's mentor, uh, Charles Feinberg, tells us this phrase, beloved or desired of women, is not a sexual reference, nor is it a reference to an idol worshipped by women. This was rather the religious hope and desire of every God-fearing woman in the Jewish world to be the mother of their Messiah. So here we have, amidst the rejection of God the Father, the rejection of any consideration of Messiah at all. Why? Because Antichrist presents himself as Messiah. And not only these two, but he rejects every other God as well. 
This is the most desired and beloved goal of every woman. It fits perfectly in the context of Antichrist's rejection of Yahweh, of every God, and of any conception of Messiah because Antichrist is posing himself as Messiah. And the conclusion of verse 37 affirms this as he magnifies himself above them all. Verse 38 takes us to our second point after a religious cessation, which is a ruler contrived. And I have a whole nother page of notes, but we have no more time on our clock. So we will come back next week, Lord willing, and we will carry on. And there are some incredible details that further support this, further support this assessment and presentation that I've made to you not only about the time frame, but about Antichrist as coming from the Jewish nation. And this is probably one of the most missed and understated aspects that we see in the scholarly world today. And it's breathtaking for us to realize, I think. So, trust you'll be with us next week. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for, thank you for the holiness that you have revealed to us in your Son. Jesus, we're overwhelmed to understand the picture of you that's been presented. We're more overwhelmed to understand what you did to come and dwell on this sin-cursed earth amongst men. To be tempted in all ways as we are yet without sin. To live that perfect life so that you could be our perfect sacrifice that you could take the wrath of God upon yourself, that which we deserve for our sin. Father, we acknowledge we sin against you each day. Father, we are sinners by nature and choice. We are darkened in our hearts and understanding. And we are so thankful, dear Lord, that you have taken this from us, that you have borne that wrath, that you have called us to yourself, that you have shown us the truth of your word, that you have called us to obedience to it. And Father, we need more obedience. Help us to see where we fall short. Father, help us to see that one of the areas that I fall short and that I think that I can say for almost every one of my brothers and sisters is in proclaiming your name to the world around us. Jesus of Nazareth, the man born of Mary and Joseph, the man who was God and fully God who came to deliver us from our sins. Father, help us to be better and more faithful stewards of this name. We praise you and we love you and we ask this all in Christ's name. Guide us safely home, we pray. Amen.